All right, we turn to this passage, and let's just be honest from the get-go. It is arresting, isn't it? If you listen to what Dana said, if you want to open to the Bible, 182 is where we read this passage, and it is joined with chapter 8. I'm going to leave chapter 8 for you to read. I'm going to let you recognize that by the end of this passage, God is back with His people, and the first two verses of chapter 8 lead you right into this idea that God is active again. Again, He is, he is at work. This passage is arresting. And I want you to be arrested in three things in this passage, all right? This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at these three things. The first one is, it is arresting as to just what happened. And how are we to understand what happened in this passage? We're going to dig that out, all right? The second thing that's arresting is our understanding of who God is, the God of the Bible. You know, the challenge of a passage like this, and maybe the challenge in your own heart today, is thank God that God doesn't exist anymore and Jesus is in his place. And I want to say, hold on, hold on just a minute. Let's let God be God for a minute. Let's look at the scripture together and be arrested at how we understand God. And then finally, I want it to be a little bit arresting. I want it to stop us as we look at the application of this. This being, as we have said week after week in Joshua so far, our story, the story of the church, the story of any of you who have put your faith and trust in Christ. This is our story, and that ought to be arresting for a minute. My family and I went to Santa Barbara. You know this story, right? I've got an addiction to Land Cruisers. You know the whole deal. I gave my kids a gift. We flew out there to pick up my truck. That's like the gift that never keeps giving or stops giving, right? And it's also the gift you're like, don't call that a gift for your children. And uh, I know. And we get there. And what do we do is we head up Highway 1. This was four years ago. But we're detoured as well. And in the distance, you see the sky aglow. And what we came to realize is that there was a fire there as we were leaving uh, L.A. through Santa Monica as we were driving up. And so these fires that are burning, it, it was just this memory that just sparked in my mind. Amazing. I was out there in August um, in, in, uh, in Malibu doing some counseling. And you know if you've been paying attention, the fires that are destroying Malibu are in that area. 70,000 acres burning, over 7,000 dwellings have been engulfed, multiple lives lost. It's, it's startling. It just makes you stop. And you go, what is it? What, what is that? And I want to start with this picture of being arrested, of, of stopping and going, what is this? What are we supposed to understand? What has happened? That's the first thing that we're going to look at in this passage. What has happened? So look at it with me, if you will. What we see in this passage is that God fights the Israelites in this passage. Suddenly, you know, the idea was that the Israelites had covenanted with God and, and, and they were going to be used as God's instrument of judgment in the Canaanite land. But suddenly we understand that the instrument of judgment has become the thing that is devoted to destruction. And that word, devoted to destruction, either in its noun form or in its verb form, the things that are devoted to destruction or devote them to destruction, you can read at the bottom, set them apart for destruction. That's sort of central to what's happened here. And we've got to get a hold of that if we're going to understand it. But the very first sentence 
The very first verse, rather, stops you, doesn't it? But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. There's that word again. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Oh, man, this is amazing. We're told in the beginning verse what happened, and then what happened is unpacked for us, okay? It's unpacked for these verses 2 through 5 when we understand what Joshua did, right? So Joshua divides, he sends people up to this next town that's next to Jericho, Ai, this town that by its very name means ruin, this tiny little place that surely we can crush this place easily and the people come back and they say, oh yeah, this is not going to be a problem. Send us up there. In fact, don't even send all the people, just send a very small amount of us because we're going we're gonna to completely overwhelm this town. And in fact, that's not what happens. You read those verses. In fact, instead, the people from that town overwhelm the Israelites, killing, it says, 36 of them, and the Israelites all flee. And what we see is that Joshua turns around and Joshua himself goes before the Lord and tears his clothing, covers his head with ashes, and goes, God, what are you doing? So if you wonder in this passage, what is God doing? You're in good company. Because that's what Joshua is wondering too. That's what Joshua is wondering. Studied this idea of devoted to destruction. What does it mean in this section of Scripture, very particular to this moment in the history of Israel, to set apart for destruction or the things that are devoted for destruction? Because what God does is He explains in verses, let's see, where is it, 10 and following. He tells Joshua what's happened, right? Joshua, who's on his face before the Lord. And, and as a brief side note, recognize that Joshua gives us a great example of what it means to come before the Lord when we don't know what's going on. You say, well, Joshua sounds a lot like the Israelites. Maybe you remember the story in Numbers where the Israelites go to Moses and they complain against Moses. Go, did you just bring us out here to kill us? That's all you've done is brought us out here to kill us. It had been better if you had left us in Egypt. But what's different here is that unlike the Israelites who just go and complain, Joshua goes and he casts himself at the foot of God. He casts himself before the Lord, before the Ark of the Covenant, at the tabernacle. With the elders of the people, they say, come with me. We have to humble ourselves before God. We have to ask him what's happening, what's going on. A great example of what it would look like for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. For us to come before Him when we're confused, when we don't understand. This is a great example of what Joshua is doing. But the Lord answers Joshua. He says to Joshua in verse 10, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And so this is the first that Joshua understands, even though you learned about it in verse 1 of chapter 7. Here Joshua understands it for the first time. And the sin of Israel is described like this. They have transgressed my covenant. They've broken my covenant is what he says. The covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. Remember, God had told them that when they go to Jericho, they are supposed to destroy everything and take nothing of their own, right? They're supposed to destroy everything that breathes by fire, and they're supposed to bring everything else to the Lord. That is His. Everything that fire couldn't purify, right? And they're supposed to take it to Him. 
And the Lord says this. It says that they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them in their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Because they took some of the devoted things, the very instrument of God's judgment, the nation of Israel, has now become itself devoted for destruction. Now look, we've got to stop and go, what in the world is this devoted for destruction stuff? This is the only place that it's used as the physical reality of the nation of Israel conquesting Canaan, the land that God is giving them. As one scholar said this time, it is the intrusion of the end of time into the era of common grace. This picture of God destroying everything in these towns is the intrusion of the end of time into the era of God's common grace. This era where people live and, and, and they sin and they, they, they meet God. And the question is, will you repent or not repent? But this idea of devoted to destruction is the intrusion of the reality of the end of time of judgment into the era of common grace. It's kind of shocking. And, and what do we understand it to be? The Israelites were at war in Canaan, right? Well, if you go back and read in Deuteronomy 20, did you know that they were supposed to treat the nations outside of the promised land differently than they treated the nations in the promised land? Isn't that interesting? If they came across a nation outside of the promised land and they let the nation know, hey, look, we're going into Canaan because God has given us that land. And if they let them go through, then everything was fine. It was fine. In fact, they could become part of the people. But if they didn't, then they were supposed to fight and go through them. But in Canaan, that wasn't the case. Because God was waging war himself on Canaan. We see from Egypt that when God waged war with the death of the firstborn, he says that he waged war against the gods of Egypt. And here we see that God is waging war against the gods of the Canaanites. And for the Israelites, participating in this, as one scholar said, is an act of worship. It's actually an act of worship for the Israelites. It's interesting to see that before war, they were supposed to consecrate themselves. They were supposed to uh, have clean clothes on. If you go back and you read parts of Exodus and parts of Leviticus, the idea of consecrating themselves before the battle was because they were going into watching God do something, into witnessing the power of God. During the battle, it was all associated around the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And after the battle was the last stage of this, which is devoting everything to God, setting it aside and devoting it for destruction. But here, God tells Joshua, I didn't go with you to Ai, and I'm not going to go with you any further because you have brought devoted to destruction things, items that were supposed to be set apart for judgment, and you have taken them from yourselves. And at this point, Joshua has no clue how many people are responsible, right? He has no idea. But God then, in verse, in, where is it? verse 13, he says a second time, get up. 
And then he says, consecrate the people and say, consecrate for yourself, yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. You can't stand before your enemies when there are devoted things in your midst, he says. And so he says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to bring all the people before me. Recognize that in this verse 13, when he says, consecrate yourselves before me, it's the very first verbal opportunity for repentance that we see for anyone who's taken anything that has been voted for destruction. To consecrate yourselves would be to return to the Lord and to put your trust in Him, to be ready to obey Him. To remember, oh yes, this is who we are. Let's go before God. Now look, you can imagine that whoever took these devoted for destruction items might have had a guilty conscience even before this moment, but the moment where Joshua says, consecrate yourself for tomorrow, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be trouble among us. That it was an opportunity to repent. And then it says that God began to bring the people before him, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, man by man, to determine who it was who had stolen the things that belonged to the Lord. That's what has happened, and that's what happens here. And so it says in those verses that follow, 16 and following, it says exactly what happened. That the tribes came forward and Judah was picked. That the clans came forward and the clan was picked. That the clans came forward and the family was picked. The family came forward, the man was picked. The man's family came forward and the man Achan was chosen. And Joshua said, son, tell me what you have done. If you read it closely, he has to do it in front of his grandfather who was there. And he has to say, this is what I've done. And there's a great description of what Achan has done. It seems like Achan has really played along. It seems like he's participated, right? But even up to now, he's had multiple times to repent. And here we see Achan answering Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. And the description of his sin really matches what Eve did in the garden, doesn't it? I saw something I wanted, I coveted it, and therefore I took it. And Achan was the one who was responsible for bringing judgment on God's people. What we see here is that God's judgment was exact for Achan, wasn't it? It was exact for Israel. It went straight to the source and identified. It was anything except erratic. It was precise. And then we see Achan's death portrayed. The stoning of Achan and everything that belonged to him that lived and breathed was also stoned and then burned and then a pile of stones piled up on it. Everyone whom Achan represented as the head of his family died with him. And this is shocking. This is arresting. That's what happened in this text. You can go ahead and read chapter 8 tonight. You can read it this week if you want to. But it obviously starts with this way in chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. So suddenly God starts directing again the battle of the Israelites. Notice that instead of Joshua trusting in his spies to go out and tell him what to do, Joshua now waits on the Lord. <laughs> and he says, you tell me what to do. Right? Joshua gets it. And the Lord has brought purification into the people. But we stop and we are arrested 
by the reality of this passage. And if we're not, we're not paying attention to it. This is an arresting reality. Especially when you see the children and the sons and the daughters and, and everything who lives and breathes and has being in Achan's family is destroyed because of Achan, their representative head. You see, the Bible is very clear that human beings are never innocent. But human beings, because ultimately our representative head, Adam and Eve, Adam has sinned, and therefore sin has affected all of us. And God's judgment is no different for Achan and his family than it is for the Canaanites. Because Israel, that was supposed to be the instrument of judgment, has become devoted for destruction because of what Achan did. We stop and we realize if this is who God is, do any of us have any hope? <laughs> we stop and go, oh my word, this is God. Well, the second thing that is arresting, if that's the first thing that's arresting, what happened, the second of three things that's arresting is how do we begin to understand God? We have this story. Those of you who have studied Scripture also understand that we have Jesus in the New Testament. And we begin to try to put together who is the God of the Bible? Do we have two gods? You know if, as well as I do that if you read a story like this throughout the entirety of Scripture and you begin to understand one God and then you see God act in what seems like a completely different way through the person and the work of Jesus, you go, how am I supposed to understand? Who do I trust? And maybe you say, with a God that has a past like that that is so dark, I actually want nothing to do with. Maybe you have said, as one of my friends said to me this week, look, for me, it's just all about Jesus. The rest of the Bible, I want nothing else to do with. But for me, it's all about Jesus. And I want to say, hold on just a minute. How do you understand who God is? Because there's something here that is pretty arresting. I want to say that with this idea of things devoted for destruction, to devote them to destruction, to set them apart for destruction, as this word is, and it's a complicated concept, it has as its core the identity of fire. It has as its core the identity of fire. We see that God told Joshua that whomever stole the things that were stolen as well as the one who stole it and all whom he represents had to be burned. It says here in the very first verse that the anger of the Lord burned against his people. And you say, this idea of the God of the Bible being about fire is overwhelming. And I want to say, yes, it is indeed overwhelming. And let me give you a few places where it comes from. The very first covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, God makes the covenant with Abraham. And as they are, as they are uh, ratifying the covenant, God shows up in the form of a smoking pot and a burning, flaming torch. As Abraham pleads for the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, God says his judgment is coming on Sodom and Gomorrah and fire rains from heaven. Moses meets God in the Bible at a burning bush, fire. And then he leads the people of God through the wilderness under a pillar of fire. 
The entire sacrificial system set up in the Old Testament is a system that has to do about fire and about sacrifices being burned. You see here the conquest of the promised land. And you see that here God is judging the gods that are against him. And he's doing so with fire. When his prophet Elijah comes against the prophets of Baal and they have an argument and they try to see who is worshiping, who is the real God, is it Baal or is it Yahweh? The challenge is to see who can call fire down from heaven. And Elijah does that. John the Baptist, when he comes on the scene in the New Testament, in Matthew 3, what does he talk about? He talks about fire, doesn't he? He talks about the trees that don't bear fruit. The branches will be cut up and thrown into the fire. And then he says of Jesus, he says, I've come to baptize you with water, but there will be one who is coming who will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire, is what he says. And then Jesus himself focuses on fire more than he focuses on heaven. He has the parable of the weeds and the parable of the wheat that make up the, the church. And he says at the end of days, the weeds will be gathered up and burned in the fire. One of my favorite stories about Jesus and fire is when he casts out the demon from this child. And what is the demon trying to do to the child? But throwing the child into fire and into water. These two pictures of judgment straight out of the Old Testament. And Jesus, in casting out the demon, says... I am God, not that demon. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the fire and of hell. And then the book of Revelation is filled with fire. I want you to understand that this picture of the purifying agent of fire, not one that is erratic and out of control like the fires burning, the, the by definition wildfires in California, but the exacting, precise fire of God's judgment is what is actually consistent through all of Scripture. It's consistent through it all. And so you understand that if you say, I want Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with fire, there is no such thing of that in all the Bible and all of Christianity. And it is arresting, is it not? It's arresting for all of us. But to try to make it not arresting and try to avoid it is to misinterpret Scripture, is to misinterpret the holiness of God, is to misinterpret the seriousness with which God deals with sin. And this is the last thing that I want to tell you is arresting. The first thing that I said was arresting is what actually happened in this passage. And it is arresting what God does. He shows himself to be faithful to Israel the same way he shows himself to be faithful to Canaan by judgment. That's arresting. The second thing that's arresting is this is consistent with the God of all of Scripture. Not different in the Old Testament than the New, but consistent throughout. And the last thing that is arresting is that this is our story. This is our story. And that has to arrest us for just a minute. We have to stop. What is the story that you live by? 
Mita and Louisa and I watched Crazy Rich Asians this weekend, and we loved it. We thought it was a great movie. It was really cool. It takes place with these two folks coming from New York City, right? And this one guy and his girlfriend decide they're going to fly back to Singapore and meet his family. And she has no idea what she's getting into. And I'm not going to go into the whole story. But the, the, as it unfolds that he is incredibly wealthy, uh, she's pretty overwhelmed. And there are two stories that kind of compete in this narrative, right? The two stories are the one of the Chinese mother who says, look, your life should be about family and tradition. That's what you should be about, and that's all that you should care about. And the young couple, not surprising, says, no, 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 no. Our family is not going to be about family and tradition. We're going to be about freedom and passion. <laughs> We're going to follow our passion. You see these competing stories. The movie was even more brilliant because the, the, the mother who was demanding family and tradition actually is holding a Bible study at her house when she discovers that her son is coming. And so Christianity is thrown right under the bus right in the very beginning, right? And you see this picture that it's either family and tradition that you give your life for or it is your own freedom and your passion. That's what the movie presented for us anyway. And what's interesting is that the picture was one that if you are about freedom and passion, you're concerned more with injustice and with civil rights, especially when they benefit your radical individualism and your ability to define yourself the way you want to. The world gets very passionate about that. But what's arresting is that what we see in this passage is that God cares about sin and about injustice and about oppression infinitely more than we do. And we're stopped by that. I'm reading another book that I'd love to hear your take on. I'd love it if some of you would read it. It's a book called A Better Story. The subtitle is God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And, and the concept behind it is Christians have a better story to tell than personal freedom and self-fulfillment. We have a better story to tell. And what is that story? It's this story. It's this story. It's the biblical story that we have. Because you see, in this story, we see that God promises as far back as Genesis 3 to remove sin and suffering to remove the oppression of humanity because of the presence of sin, because of the radical denial that God is in charge and rather that we are in charge. That's the story of Scripture. It goes through the flood of Noah where God says there's one way to deal with the sinfulness of humanity. It's to flood them. But the demonstration is that's not going to fix it. And thankfully, God rescues Noah and his family, right? And then it goes from there and he says, oh, I'm going to make myself known even more through the nation of Israel. Make my law known so that sin is defined. And through this nation of Israel, God is going to bless the nations. But what we see is that the nation of Israel turns against the nations, what we see is that the nation of Israel begins to oppress 
and begins to practice the injustice of their own neighbors. The nation that was to be the servant of the Lord turns against their neighbors. And what we see is that the servant Jesus, the second Joshua to come, he is the suffering servant who, unlike Joshua, who purifies the nation by identifying the sin and destroying it among them, he himself becomes devoted for destruction on our behalf. In Isaiah 53, we read that he took on our sin. He was crushed for our iniquity. And it was the Lord's will, it was his pleasure to crush him. That's amazing that Jesus is the one who talks about the fire and the judgment of God. And yet he himself took on the wrath of God for us. The story of the Bible is so much bigger than tradition and family on the one side or freedom and self-fulfillment on the other. But it is a God who has set his affection on his people to the point that he sends his own son to bear his wrath on their behalf, thus being devoted for destruction. It's an arresting story when you look at it in the context of all of Scripture unfolded to you. We belong to him. We are bought with his blood. We are set apart. That's what it means when those who have put their trust in Christ are called saints. And we hear what Joshua proclaimed to the people here, consecrate yourselves. You see, the application that's arresting is the opportunity to go, wow, I need to stop and think about my life. How I'm living, what I'm living for, what my identity is. Because we're a whole lot more like Achan than we think. We take that which is set apart for the Lord, our own selves, no longer set apart for destruction because Christ has been destroyed for us once for all, brought back to life because he's the perfect sacrifice. And yet like Achan, we say, no, I'm going to live my life for myself. I'm going to take it back. And I'm going to live it. You see, we're tempted, just like Achan, to take that which belongs to God and use it for ourselves. God is serious about sin. This same seriousness pops up in the New Testament. If you read Acts 5, you see this picture of Ananias and Sapphira who, who you know, are part of the community of Christ, the community of the church. And, and the church is bringing everything that they have and presenting it to the disciples and saying, look, we're giving ourselves. And Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing. They bring and they sell this piece of land and they bring it and they put it at the feet of the disciples. But Peter looks at Ananias and he says, Ananias, why have you lied? What's motivated you to lie to the Holy Spirit and to say that you've given everything when you've actually held back for yourself? And Ananias dies right away. Sapphira comes up after him and, and Peter gives Sapphira an opportunity to repent. He goes, Sapphira, is this everything that you sold the land for? And she goes, yes, it's everything. Because she and Ananias had made the decision to say that. Sapphira, 
dies right there. God is serious about sin. He's serious about our lives. He has been from the beginning because God is more serious about injustices and civil rights and oppression. The rights of human beings created in His image than we are. And infinitely so because He knows more than anyone else who we as human beings are created to be. God calls us to consecrate ourselves. That's why we have this table at the end of a sermon. That's why those of you who have put your faith and trust in Christ come to this table. And you say, I see this in my own life. God, I take your holiness seriously. Will you work in me? Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he says that one day, everything that you do will be judged by fire. And that which is silver and gold, that which is part of the kingdom, that which has been built to the kingdom will pass through the fire. But that which isn't, he calls hay and stubble, will be burned away. And he says that it will be at the cost, not of our lives, but it will be at the cost of our efforts. What we have poured ourselves into this side of heaven. That's for Christians, right? The writer of Hebrews, what does he say about our God? He says that our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. This passage is arresting not only in what happened, but in our understanding about God, consistent from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. And finally, it's arresting because it is our story into which we live our lives. And we ought to take it seriously and to come before the Lord and to say, where? Where is it? I want to repent. I want to repent now. Show me. Listen, if you're here today, and this is the first time that you've put together from beginning to the end of Scripture that human beings created in the image of God are going to be held accountable to how they bore that image on the earth, I want you to know that Jesus' death and sacrifice can be yours. You can put your faith and trust in Him. You can trust in Him because the God of Scripture has been consistent from the beginning that He is going to do, deal with injustice and oppression and persecution. God is going to deal with it. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, what gives you the courage to be honest about the depth of this passage, it's what God says in Isaiah 53 as we close. Or God, Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you.
I give men in exchange for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not. I am with you. This is an arresting story. Let it arrest us as we come to the table and be fed. Pray with me.